today's episode of Urbanite Radio, an interview with playwright Frankie D. Gonzalez. I'm your host, Brendan Reagan, co-artistic director of Urbanite Theater. Frankie D. Gonzalez is a playwright and TV writer of Colombian descent, splitting time between Dallas and Los Angeles. His work has been produced prominently in the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex, and nationally his work has appeared with The Lark, The Sundance Institute, The Ojai Playwrights Conference, The Great Plains Theater Conference, The Goodman Theater, Repertorio Español, Labyrinth Theater Company, Dallas Theater Center, The Latinx Playwright Circle, Stages Repertory Theater, and too many more to list. Frankie has won a number of awards for his writing, and he was a staff writer for the fourth season of the Netflix show 13 Reasons Why. He is also one of five playwrights that has been commissioned for a new work by Urbanite Theater as one of the winners of the inaugural Charles Rowan by New Play Commission. So we'll talk about life as a playwright and his plans for that play at Urbanite and lots more. Here's our chat. All right. Hey, Frankie, welcome to Urbanite Radio. Thank you for being here. I wanted to talk to you today because often patrons in the theater get a lot of access to actors and at talkbacks, they frequently get to talk to directors, but we don't get to spend much time with playwrights, the people behind many of the works that we're doing. So I wanted to talk to you today about what it's like being a playwright and hey, while we're at it, what it's like being a playwright and writer in the middle of a pandemic. Um, so tell me something, is it submission season right now? Uh, I'm one of those that it's submission season all year long, uh, <laughs> but, um, yes, it, it is submission season. Um, I think the O'Neill just closed. That's, that's the big, big one. Um, their, their submissions. And I think barrier playwrights festival just closed. And there's a few others that are out there that, that are open, um, submission season as people understand it, you know, it's just, uh, a chance to submit your newest scripts, um, depending on how polished they are. You know, it varies from playwright to playwright to, to different um, development organizations around the country, in some cases around the world, but um, but that, that's few and far in between. But yeah, it, it is uh, what we would call submission season. I, I look at it as like kind of two periods. One is in the fall um, so that you can get opportunities in the spring and the other one happens in winter so that you can get opportunities in the fall that, that come up, or I'm sorry, the summer, not the fall, yeah. Yeah, and tell me why the O'Neill is considered sort of the gold standard. That's the big one that everyone chases down. What's what's the O'Neill uh, submission like? So the the O'Neill um, is a place where a lot of really amazing, amazing plays have come out. Um, some of the works of August Wilson, uh, for example. Um, I believe David Auburn also came out of the O'Neill. Um, some really phenomenal playwrights, some plays, some great musicals as well. And, and not only just plays, but um, they also have a puppet conference. They also are one of the gold standards in terms of their directing fellowships. And I, I think that they have, I'm, I'm not sure, um, I think that they have a, a portion that's dedicated to critics as well, to, to helping to cultivate critics um, in, in the theater world. So really the O'Neill is a place where you can get world-class dramaturgical support. You get some of the best people um, to look at your play, to help challenge your play, to help it grow. And also in a kind of hybrid of other development conferences where you develop a play and present it after about a week's time, like um, uh, with some of the other ones, like a Great Plains Theater Conference or a Lark, for example. With the O'Neill, it's a month-long process. So you have a long time with the director. Um, I'm not sure if the cast shows up 
early in the process or a little later, but you just have time to really sit down and develop your work over a period of time. So it's very much like one of the, uh, like the McDowell Fellowship in which you spend a month working on something. But in this case with the O'Neill, you are, you are getting that month to work with other collaborators. It's not just you, the lonely playwright, writing a play, hoping that someone will take it one day. This is um, a great step and a great, um, uh, a great step towards eventually getting that production. So uh, it, it really is because it's just a kind of all-purpose um, place where you can get advice from all different perspectives in the theater. Um, and and um, just its track record of quality, um, I think, on just August Wilson's career alone, <laughs> that's more than enough, you know? Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's... It's it's a it's a great place. I dream of going there one day. You know, hopefully soon one day. But, um, but yeah. every year you just have to keep submitting year after year. It's uh, mm-hmm. it's one of many opportunities that I know several playwrights submit to every year, no matter what. And I want mm-hmm. you to tell someone who has never had any kind of experience with with this side of theater. What kinds of things are most of these places asking for? Is it full-length plays? Is it proposals? Or is it a little bit of everything? It's a little bit of everything depending on the place that you're going to. Um, for something like The O'Neill, you should probably have a full-length play. You can also have a one-act. It's it's not unheard of that they will do one-act, and they say so on their website. But they generally take full-length plays. Um, there are other places like, for example, Ground Floor, ground floor at Berkeley, uh, at Berkeley Rep, will, that will take uh, – uh, a proposal. Um, there are other places like uh, a fellowship where you can just spend time developing an idea like at Yado or McDowell where you can send a proposal in and you send a, a writing sample. Um, and then there are other places like New Dramatists and Poor Writers over at the Playwright Center, which will see your previous work, your past work, and you submit to them a proposal where you're going as a playwright, what trajectory you're going to be going in and how that organization specifically can help you. With the pandemic changing the way that a lot of theaters are going to be approaching work, specifically in 2021, when we're all anticipating some level of in-person theater coming back, are you seeing mm-hmm. that the majority of these large uh, submission opportunities, are they changing as well? Are they asking for for a different kind of submission, have you noticed? In terms of the big ones, not necessarily. There's some that just aren't even taking anything at all. Um, so they're, they're just suspending for a while. I think, what is it? The relentless award, new dramatists, a few of those places they have, um, they're, they're going to pause for a year in most places right now. I don't know what the anticipation is for 2021, but for 2020, what has been happening during the pandemic is we've done a lot of digital, um, residencies. So for example, the Sundance Institute did a, a month long digital residency where you got to learn and develop work, um, with your peers, over Zoom. Um, the conference that I'm part of right now, developing another play, um, the Ojai Playwrights Conference, is also doing something similar where all the playwrights are presenting their work, working on it over a period of, of months, and we meet, you know, once or twice uh, every week or every other week, uh, and we just present work or we get together, we chat, and we try to make it as close to what it would be as possible if we had that week long you know, time off together or that month time off together. So a lot of it hasn't been asking necessarily for anything differently in terms of um, in terms of the development conferences, but there are a lot of theaters that are starting to lean towards audio um, as 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 a as an option and as a resource to really um, keep theater going in some way. And there's lots of theaters that are pivoting, especially to audio, and I, I think that's really exciting. Um, I think it's it's definitely a new form, and I think it for a playwright. 
it's um it's kind of a dream as well as a challenge because a playwright is all about their words so when you're, when you're talking about you know all oh, my words you can't change my lines you can't do any of those things that the, the great right. stereotypes of playwrights yeah. um a playwright can lean on the excuse of oh well the direction was just this oh well you know the set design was this oh whether well, the at, at, with audio it's just your words and that is it it's it's either your words are good or they're not um and that's that's really really exciting for a playwright um and at the same time it's very daunting but I, if, if I am seeing anything outside of the major development conferences who just aren't taking anything, I haven't seen much change in what they're asking for. But from theaters specifically, I am seeing that they're pivoting towards audio um, plays and they're starting to talk with the playwrights that they've already been in conversation with to create audio plays for them or even record a monologue um, like on Zoom or something like that. Um, that I am seeing a lot more of. Yeah. And, you know, it's something that we're doing at Urbanite. We just dabbled with our first radio play. We learned a lot about making it. And I think you're right in that it lays bare the words and the text much more nakedly than uh, an in-person production might because you can add so much visually and you can um, expand on moments physically and you can't do that with an audio play. However, you are able to do more magical things that you don't need to mm -hmm. somehow pull off as a visual in a theater. So it offers an opportunity, I think, to expand creativity, but also there's this constraint to which it's like, you can't just rely on a director to solve something like the the words, like you said, have to be there and they have to be right for everything to work. But I think it's an exciting medium to, to work in. Uh, I think what we and many theaters are going to figure out is how do we make that profitable for everyone and not just mm -hmm. profitable. Okay. Can we make it break even? Can we pay everyone to do it? And can we not lose money? Because one fantastic thing about uh, audio entertainment right now is the explosion of podcasts, but mm -hmm. all of them are free. So now theaters are, are instead of being in a ticket selling model, starting to think about, well, maybe we're in a subscript or a um, a a commercial or or uh, supporter model where yeah. we're having people, um, you know, either advertise with our audio dramas or um, mm -hmm. you know just donate to make them. Does any of that factor in in the way that you're thinking about writing for audio? The way that there it's that that audio is being consumed so differently across other platforms, interviews, I mean, this right now, and yeah. of course, uh, documentaries and all of that. Do you think about how, I, how people are uh, consuming them? I, I think that at the very outset, no, I'm, I'm going to write the ideas that I'm going to, that I have, I am going to write what I, what I know and write what I want to write. Um, but then as I am beginning to shop something around, that's when I have to start considering where is this going to, where is this going to go? You know, if, if I'm going to be sending, you know, uh, a, a play that deals with um, taboos of some sort, I might not want to send it to a more conservative theater that, you know, is more known for producing the Christmas Carol than anything sure. else, you know? Um, I, I might not want to do that. Uh, if I'm making a, you know, a religious piece, am I really going to go send it over to a theater that produces, 
something that's not, you know, that, that's kind of not religious, you know, it, it, and, and those are when I start considering those things and, and where I can find a home for my plays is after I've written them. If I start considering things like who's going to be listening to this, who's going to do that, I'm going to get into the writer head about it and think about how, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm not a very good writer. No one will ever listen to this. Whoever wants to listen to this. No, I, at that point, I've, I've, I've already, I've already self-defeated myself. And there are plays and ideas that I've had where I've thought exactly about that. And I put the play away and I'm like, you know what, at some point um, that thought will leave my head and then I can pick this play up again. But until then, I'm putting it down because I'm no longer writing. Um, I'm no longer writing something. Honestly, I'm writing something with the idea of trying to make a buck off of it. I think that unlike other participants in the theater you don't really get into playwriting for the money unfortunately there's there's not um it's i mean it's it's done very well i'm very grateful but at the same time there's the the reality that a playwright's writing for the love of the thing um and and that's that's really where it is if it's not coming from a place of love then you know what are you writing it for if you're writing it for economic advantage i'd be like well why don't you go to TV then? Right. <laughs> if it's for economic advantage, you know, yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, that, that's me. I, I think that it is something that we do have to consider though, is, is how we model everything, you know, uh, um, you know, much like, I think there's a lot to draw from, you know, the famous podcasters or even YouTubers, TikTok artists who, for whom it's a lot about the interactions uh, about how, how fast you get to the end of the video, who's actually watching through the ads, things like that. Those are considerations that I think we're going to be navigating for a while now. Um, as, a, as a playwright, plagues are one of those things that you end up studying for some odd reason at all. I don't know why, I, at least for me. And these things don't go away very quickly. Um, it, it, it doesn't. So you, you kind of have to pivot. But regardless of a pandemic or not, I think that this is a really refreshing thing that we've been needing to make that pivot towards anyway this has just forced us just to confront that and get to it and really look at it and um there's a lot of great opportunity there's a lot of really fun stuff that can happen in which you can work with the cast from all over the country um and you can save a lot on on, on other on other aspects but uh but yeah that that subscriber model or the interactions model that's something that i i i, I can't think about or else i'm going to get too in my head about the writing process itself that's an interesting split that you may not think about if you're not a writer, which is writing for something to be produced versus writing to write a narrative that needs to get out of your head or that you mm -hmm. have a great joy in creating and mm -hmm. then finding out if anyone wants to produce it. Mm -hmm. Playwrights probably work in, in both of those directions. But um, so is it fair to say that you you work primarily on 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 writing what needs to be written? and then finding a home for it? Yeah, um, I, I, I can't uh, try to write something for producibility. I used to try to do that when I was in college. I used to think I'm gonna write the next great American play. And so of course that created a lot of pale imitations of, of a Sam Shepard or a Pinter um, in my work that I, I, looking back on it, I look at it, I'm just like, oh my gosh, what was I doing? What is wrong with me? Um, and and in, in and of themselves, when you see that they're poor parodies, that kind of makes them unproducible in, in its own way. So in my attempt to be commercial, I made myself uncommercial. Um, and so I, I, I don't um, I don't live too much in the idea of, you know, when, when am I gonna get a produ production? But I, I do operate for me personally a little differently than perhaps other playwrights do in that I'm just grateful to be here. Like um, I'm just grateful to be involved in the theater somehow. I'm just grateful that I get to have the privilege of being able to write, write a play because I, I had a harder upbringing 
um, than some uh, get to have. And a lot of my stuff is self-taught. A lot of my stuff is just, you know, I had to go it alone um, for a lot of my theater journey so that I have the opportunity to write it all. Production or not, um, the odds were I was never going to get a production anyway. So I'm not going to cry over something that I'm not that I wasn't supposed to get. I've got this much that I'm here at this moment is you don't know how beyond grateful I am um, for yeah. for being able to just spend some time here and talk theater. That's not something that the odds said I was supposed to have. So yeah, it, it doesn't go too much into my writing because honestly, um, by everyone's standards and everyone's numbers, I wasn't supposed to be writing plays in the first place. It's just what it is. So that I get to write plays, shoot, I'm, I'm good. Uh, if they get produced, even better. Uh, if I get paid, wow, this actually worked. Um, yeah. Worked. yeah. <laughs> so who were your influences as you started growing an interest in becoming a writer? Um, so uh, a little backstory. My mother forced me to take a theater class at the age of 16. Um, she was just like, you need to take an elective and you're going to be a cultured individual. Unlike your father, um, <laughs> you're going to be cultured. So you're taking the theater class. And I was like, mom, no, I'm not, that's not gangster. What are you talking about? I don't want to do that. What do you mean? And she's like, you're taking it. I don't care. And first weekend, um, I always loved reading and I never, um, thought of theater or playwriting at all as an option for me. I wanted to be a writer. I just wasn't a very good one. And my teacher saw that I was always reading books, uh, my theater teacher in high school. And she said, hey, uh, I think it was like in my third week in the class. She said, hey, I see you like reading a lot. Why don't you read this? And she handed me three plays that changed everything. She handed me Federico Garcia Lorca's Blood Wedding, Waiting for Godot by uh, Samuel Beckett, and Luigi Pirandello's Six Characters in Search of an Author. When I read, I read all three of those in like a night. And I didn't get any sleep. But all I could think about was I found the thing I want to write for the rest of my life. And from there, not even kidding, that that summer of junior year going into senior year, I read something like 180 scripts over the summer just to, just to read them because I was like, I got to catch up. I got to figure out what I want to do. And so I started really, really leaning in on like the absurdists um, like Beckett. Beckett is probably my most favorite playwright of all time. Um, but I also started leaning into a lot of the Spanish surrealists. So like Fernando Arabal, Federico Garcia Lorca, um, some of the more modern um, Spanish theater, like Juan Mayorga's work, like Love Letters to Stalin or um, Way to Heaven. Um, I really love the French. Um, oh my gosh, I could, I, I could talk Molière all day. Um, Molière, um, Yasmina Reza, who made art, uh, God of Carnage. Um, a lot of Camus' work, Albert Camus, you know, with Caligula was just like, wow, this is amazing. Um, and then I started getting into like weird theater after that, like, um, beyond the Russians, like I started getting into like Egyptian theater or Japanese no theater. And so, but it, it really, everything started with those three plays. Um, and I, I, I credit Pirandello Lorca and Beckett with beginning my the, my theatrical journey. Um, and then Shakespeare for always casting that shadow on me, um, of like, you know, how do I make language sound nice? <laughs> but, yeah. but yeah, um, those three, that, that was, that was it for me. Um, when, once I read them, that was, I was, I was there, I was ready. Um, and since then I've gained other tastes, but those, those are where it started for me. And I can see some of those more magical and absurd influences in your writing. I uh, one of the things that Summer and I really appreciated about your not only the work of yours that we read, but the um, the proposal that you sent to us was this sense that you wanted to tackle issues that mattered, but you were not bound by reality to do it. And that's 
those are two really important things to a theater like Urbanite, where we want to make our work about something culturally, socially, politically important that leaves people saying, wow, that's a subject I didn't know about, or that's something I have to look into, or, um, you know, uh, I feel differently about this um, going in, having heard opinions and voices that were not my own. But we are also so small and so intimate that we love to produce things that have non-realistic or bold, exciting uh, environments and worlds that you can do them in that allow an audience to dive into that imagination, like a Lorca, uh, for example. So is that the way, is that accurate? Or did we just see that in sort of your proposal? Is that is that the world you like to live in as a writer? Yeah, yeah, I do. And um, I think ultimately my, my heritage has a lot to play with that. I, I am I am Colombian. And um, one of the conditions that I had for being able to take on being a playwright as a quote unquote career choice was my grandfather said, okay, you can do that, but you got to read Gabriel Garcia Marquez first. Um, sure. And so reading, yeah. <laughs> so it's just like, you know, got to read the, the, the national pride and everything. And then of course that led to like Borges, Vicente Alexandre, Octavio Paz and everything. So like um, to me, the absolutely magical is really one of those things that it's not it's not so magical at all because it, it just happens and you accept it. Um, one of the things that you learn as as far as I've seen um, as a um, minority is that it just happens and you either accept it or you you get swallowed by the the things that happen. So for example, one day I, I woke up and some family members of mine were gone. Um, I just woke up and they were gone. And wherever they went, I, I don't know, um, but they were gone. As a child, I didn't know. I know now as an adult, of course, but you wake up and, and that's it. it, it they're, they're, they've disappeared. Um, or like, a, you know, a, a tragedy befalls the house and you still got to live there. So, you know, cockroaches might invade the house like in a Marquez novel. There's a whole bunch of them everywhere. Um, but you got to live there because you got no other place to be. Well, if that's not apartments in New York, I don't know what is, <laughs> you know, so it's it, right. It's kind of like keep retaining some aspect of the childlike wonder um, to the absurdities of the world. And when you start painting them that way, it seems like it's a, a magical, realistic thing um, until you realize, wait, but that that does happen. Impossible theater is, is only impossible because we haven't seen it happen in our own lives. I'm almost certain that anything that Lorca wrote happened um, in some way. But just like in Big Fish, um, the stories were just a little, you know, you know, it became a tall tale. Um, so much of much of anything that I write happened. It's just we have to add a little bit of color to that in order to make the story interesting. Um, and what I've discovered is in telling those stories, people are like, wow, that's that's really so 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 that happened in a black hole. I'm like, yeah, in a black hole. <laughs> um, or something like that, you know. Um, as we were being spaghettified, uh, you wouldn't believe. Um, or like there's a giant burrowing animal that I would walk into, and you know, it's it's a train, but you know, as far as I saw as a kid, it's like I got into this giant earthworm that took me um to a magical place called Queens. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, but yeah, I mean, memories um, and memories and emotions don't always happen and exist in fourth wall realism and while many plays do mm -hmm, mm -hmm. i'm always so delighted when i get to read a play that leaves that convention behind i mean of course we'll produce those types of works um it's it's such an accessible 
uh, method of storytelling, but I love it when we can relate and tell effective stories without subscribing to the realities of the fourth wall, peeking yeah. through the keyhole uh, type of audience experience. Oh yeah, absolutely. It's it's just like um, I think one of the best like w things that I've seen in that sense is like Guillermo del Toro's Pan's Labyrinth. With like a Pan's Labyrinth, you know, everything is happening as you see it. Um, but at the same time, there's something really dark happening. So you don't know if it's the imagination of a child or, you know, dealing with the trauma of the Spanish Civil War um, or if this is really happening. And it doesn't matter. The journey's still the journey. You're, you're still always making that journey. And that, that's what makes fourth wall breaking or um, surrealism or magic realism so amazing um, in just how you're able to speak more clearly about reality in showing the unreality of everything because really that's what it is when you're talking about social issues. That's what it is when you're talking about politics is that you're talking about absurd situations that are happening in front of you and you don't see it because it's real. But then when it's turned into a uh, people transforming into rhinoceros, rhinoceri, rhinoceroses, like in UNESCO's play, that yeah. means something, you know, it's like, Oh wait, that means people becoming, you know, um, there's debate as to what it is, whether it's, you know, ultra right wing people or if it was ultra left wing people, given that UNESCO's from Romania, but that's its own like conversation <laughs> by itself. But uh, but yeah, you start realizing you're, you're learning some political truths about what's happening around you that way. You sometimes have to show it things in an unreal light in order to grasp the reality of your own situation. Um, I've learned at least. So speaking of changing the form, breaking the fourth wall. I want to talk a little bit about Paletas de Coco, which is a one man, sort of a one man show. It's a um, yeah. similar to uh, we did a production of White Rabbit, Red Rabbit by Nassim uh -huh. Salamanpour. And yep, it's yep. similar to that in that you've got yes. one performer who knows what they're doing and they're memorized and they're performing. And then you have another performer who has never seen or heard uh, of the script in their life. And I love yes. that convention just because it puts the audience so fiercely in the present. We have to live every moment as if it's happening for the first time because it actually is this time. Mm -hmm. um, you've written it from your point of view. It's your story. Mm -hmm. Are you an actor? Do you uh, anticipate performing this? Or would you like to see someone uh, perform you? Um, if I could see the opportunity of someone performing me, I would, I would love to see that. Um, and big shout outs to Nassim. He was actually one of my first playwriting teachers wow. back in like 2011. Um, I, it's the weirdest thing with Nassim, um, someone, a friend of mine in Dallas was just like, Hey, there's this guy in, um, in my own hometown of Shiraz. He writes plays. Maybe you'd like it. It's this rabbit play. I don't know what it is. Hands me the play. And I'm just like, oh my gosh, what is this? And I contacted him and we, we developed a friendship from there. And wow. so I, I owe a lot of, I, I, I owe him a huge debt of gratitude. I consider him one of my first teachers um, in, in terms of how to write plays and how to imagine an unreal theater. With Paletas de Coco, um, it does owe a huge debt to White Rabbit, Red Rabbit and his recent off-Broadway show in the scene. He helped me actually come up with the idea for Paletas cool. de Coco. He helped me develop it. Um, so credit to him on, on all that. But um, I, while I don't consider myself an actor, I do consider the search um, for my father, which is in the play, an actual real search. So I will be, I'm willing to do the role myself. If it is to be done by another actor, that's fine. But I've also developed a version of the play which can be split among five people where mm. each of them take on 
a me from every single year. So there's a Frankie 2009, a Frankie 2010, yeah, it's a Frankie 2015, I think a Frankie 2019 and a Frankie 2005. And they all take on different roles of me. And then there's the Frankie present, Frankie ahora is what it's called, which sure. means Frankie now in Spanish. Um, so yeah, I, I do have that version, but in terms of a solo show, I'm more than happy to do that. And I, I am ready to do that. Um, it's just about finding the place to do that at this point and to get that journey started. And that's that's what I'm looking for right now. Um, if theaters are interested in, in it, um, casting local actors, I got the five character version. Or if, if an actor wants to take on that solo show version, by all means. Yeah, I think I can take on the solo show version because they are stories from my life. So I know sure. them better than anyone else. I will at least know if I lose a line, I'll be like, no, I know what happens next. At the very least, I know the plot. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, improvising yeah. your way out of a, of, a, of a dead end shouldn't be too hard when it's your own story. It reminds me a little bit of Viet Gone in the way mm. that the playwright is speaking and also in a story that feels like a dramatic narrative, but is based on a true life version of, of their uh, story. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, that, that's, that's, that's exactly what I, what I wanted to create was, was to create that. And, and the other thing is really, it is a love letter to my son um, who I've had to contend a whole lot with the, the and grapple with the idea of fatherhood since he was born four years ago, um, going on five soon. Oh my God. Um, time is passing too quick. But, uh, but yeah, in, in contending with that, I had to really start making some like tough, tough, realizations and have some tough conversations with myself about what fatherhood actually means. Um, yeah. You know, um, I, I, I refer to Camus a whole lot because he, he also grew up without a dad. So I felt a, a kinship to him, you know, where you're kind of having to rediscover what the meaning of, of masculinity is when you don't have a father. You have to yeah. rediscover the meaning of what fatherhood is when you have no reference point. And what what is that interpretation going to be? Is it going to be informed by the emptiness that is there or is it going to be informed by what you wished was there and then that begs the question what is that going to do to the kid <laughs> you know what is that going yeah. to do to, to to your progeny after that um is that helpful or is that not um because we can fall into the trap of i'm trying to give you everything that i wanted but that's not necessarily what the kid wants um and so it, it, it's those questions that force me to really look at things and unwillingly um, I, I don't want to say unfortunately, but unwillingly and through gritted teeth, much like how C.S. Lewis said he came to Christianity, I came to start forgiving my father hmm. for the things that he did. And in realizing that forgiveness, I had to I had to work through it somehow. So I wrote a play in 30 hours. And so that's what I did. In 30 hours, I wrote the first draft of Paletas. And since then, it's had two expansions, um, which now include a, a, an incident that happens in June of this year. Um, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm ready to do it myself, but if someone else does it, I'd be, I'd be interested in seeing it. I would, I would, yeah. I would love to see how they play me. Um, but in me playing myself, another thing that I really want to see is, um, am, am I, am I the only, am I the only person that's thinking these thoughts mm. and how does someone take these stories? How does someone take, um, the, the concept that I put forward and, and the, the idea that I may not be so different from my old man from my very, very not great old man that, that didn't do me right in this world. And to realize that I might, I might be going down that same path. How is the performer going to take me? And sure. based on how they take me, how are they going to read that letter? How are they going to, you know, how are they going to perform their part in the play? Um, their unrehearsed, unscripted, unknown part of the play. 
um, it leaves me wondering and it interests me how people will take me because I've had people who said that they they were pissed at me um, for mm. putting this on them without their without you know without them knowing. Um, I've had people say that they empathize with me, and then I've had other people say that they understand dads better now. But yeah, um, that play, yeah, I could talk all day about that play. Yeah, I, I thought it was fascinating. I loved it. Um, you were talking about being a father, and I, I'm interested mm-hmm. to know if when you became a father, you changed as an artist and writer. Did you? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I, I, I credit my son with being the one to change the direction of everything. The moment he was born, um, I will I will never forget it. The only two men that were in that room were myself and my brother. Um, that's it. All, all the rest of the men of my family, dead, deported, incarcerated, whatever, disappeared. You know, whatever it is, they're not here. Um, and on seeing that, I realized I am no longer writing just for my own pleasure as a writer. I am writing to tell the stories that my dad didn't tell me as a kid. There is something to that, you know, um, again, going to that that novel, The First Man by, by Camus, there was a moment when even the hateful Polonius becomes a hero to his son and Laertes listens to the stories of tragedies past. Those are the things I didn't get to have. I have no idea really what what my what my paternal side looks like. I have no conception of it. And so for me, plays finally clicked and made sense to me in a sense that I now know the audience I'm writing for. I'm only writing to one person and one mm. person only. And the only critic whose opinion I care about is my son's. That's mm. it. Straight up. I'm writing everything for him. I'm writing everything to him. And as a result, upon my son being born, I wrote even Flowers, Bloom, and Hell sometimes. I wrote Paletas de Coco. I've written these plays that have been getting me these development conferences that have been getting me all of these different things. Um, um, including the the wonderful, wonderful um, commission um, that I, I received from Urbanite that I'm still, so so very grateful for. Um, that has all been because I've been wanting to tell my son the stories of the men who are, who are no longer here with us, who have been swept up in the system, who've disappeared, or who are at risk of disappearing. Um, because heaven forbid, knock on wood, this pandemic gets me, he has something of his dad that he can look at and say, oh, that's my dad. Um, so he has paletas. He, he has even flowers, which is about the men of my life. Um, mm-hmm. Even his boxing play, um, what, what links we will go to for the people that we love. Um, that's, you know, those are the links that I'd go to go through for him. Um, that's really where a lot of my writing, I think, matured um, was because I was writing finally for my audience and my audience is my son all day, every day, forever. Yeah. That's wonderful. You've hinted a little bit at the commission that we're going to do at Urbanite. Uh, the working title is The Extraordinary EB1. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's about many things, but among them, chiefly, I would say, is boxing. Mm-hmm. Are you a boxing fan? Have you always had interest in the sport? Yo, I boxing fan doesn't really even... Um... <laughs> like begin um i am a massive massive boxing fan i can talk all day about like when i say all day we could go about 15 hours and i'll still got more to say about there'll be episode Um, two you and i'll talk boxing after after we after we exhaust theater (laughs) absolutely shoot there's so much um yeah boxing to me is is one of the most human um of sports just purely um because oftentimes it is not about who has the best punch. It's not about who has um, the best footwork. 
um, those those play factors in it, but it is a human struggle. Um, our society, and it's not just the American society, but our global society, has thrilled and reveled off of the impoverished fighting for a way out. They, 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 that is just what they, what they've done, whether it's gladiator sports, whether it's even, you know, ancient Mesoamerican sports where people would be sacrificed and they were playing for the honor to, um, ascend in a way, um, that has always been a, a part of our human condition to watch as people struggle to become better after they were born low. Um, and to me, I've never seen any greater, greater, like just shows and tests of will then in boxing where you have two people i will never forget this one fight that i saw where a cuban defector um was he had pneumonia when he went into the ring he could not take any um steroids he couldn't take any antibiotics because that would come up as um a drug that would come up as a steroid on his test and he would be disqualified and if he missed this fight his chance being i think he was 38 at the time his chance as a fighter to fight for the world heavyweight title would never come again so he had to go into that fight um, with pneumonia because his family needed it. His children needed it. His daughter, it turned out later, it, it, everyone found out, was very sick. And he needed the money to pay for her treatments. And he was losing pretty badly throughout the fight. And his coach jumps in and says in Spanish, so this is why you left the island. This is it. That, that's, you're you're, you're going to fail right here at the very end. You, 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 you're right there. And this is it. Um, what about your children? What about, what about, what about the, your, your family? guy gets up and knocks the other guy out the Cuban wins um despite pneumonia because it, it was for his family you know because right. it was for those things the, those 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 things that move you and motivate you and and the other thing about it that makes it such a human human sport is that boxing is the only only sport I think where every time you win you leave something a little inside the ring I think it was um Jim Lampley that said that you leave something behind in that ring you know, a boxer is not the same every fight. They start to wear, they start to tear. Um, you see a lot of these Eastern European fighters, they go through amateur careers of 250 plus fights. Um, and then they go into the, the pros. And so but for some of them by 30, they have the bodies of 50 year olds and yet they're still going, they still move. They still keep, they still keep fighting because they have to pull their family out of poverty. They have to do all these things. And so yeah, to say I'm a boxing fan, um, huge understatement. Understatement. Like, so yeah. Um, let's, let's talk about the title EB one for those mm -hmm. that don't know means what, um, well, it's, it's a visa that is reserved for people of extraordinary talents. Um, it's often called, called the Einstein visa because yeah. that is the visa that Einstein used to come into this country. Other, um, people that have also used that visa, like Thomas Mann, um, many academics, many noted athletes, um, have used it. Um, but it is called the Einstein Genius Visa. But it is reserved for people who are of an extraordinary um, talent that is undeniable in their field. Um, so, and that could include athletics, that could include the arts, that could include academia, sciences, everything. It's kind of an all-encompassing one, but you really have to be the best in class to get that visa. It's a difficult visa to get, um, and you, you just got to show that you have a, a, a certain talent um, that is beyond an, an, any other person's. And I know that you are not a huge fan of synopses. I saw you write that recently. And we'll talk about that in a second, because I totally agree with you. Um, different subject, though. But despite that, and I know it's early yeah. in the process, yeah. um, tell us a little about what you see the extraordinary EB1 being about. If you had to, if you had to 
give yeah. us a synopsis. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> the, the the dreaded synopsis. Um, so the extraordinary EB1 follows the story of two boxers who are attempting to fight for their ultimate goal. One of them is um, the boxer Edgar Bolaños is his name. Um, and he goes by the extraordinary EB1 because that is his goal. He is undocumented, but he's only really lived in this country. He doesn't speak Spanish. He is of Latino descent, but he, he, he doesn't know any other home but this. And um, he is fighting all of these fights and he's trying to win a world title because to get an EB1 visa as a boxer means you gotta have one of the four world titles. In boxing, there are only four. That means that in any weight class, there are only four great champions. And sometimes it's it's less than that because one boxer will have two or three of the belts. Um, so that is what he is fighting for. On his polar opposite is his best friend who also serves as a kind of coach who is fighting for a chance to provide for his family. He was born impoverished um, in the streets. He's an American citizen. Um, and what he's searching for, um, realizing that he is a perennial tomato can, which in boxing, that means uh, a professional loser, someone who goes in and he gives rounds to up and coming people. He tests right, a gatekeeper of he, some kind. Yeah, he's a gatekeeper. Yeah, a journeyman. Um, you know, there, there's so many different words um, for those guys. And he loses often but he is very proud of the fact that he's never been knocked down he's never been knocked out um so he's he's very iron chinned and everything um but what he's searching for is he's searching for the person that will be the one to kill him in the ring because he's secretly taken out a massive insurance policy on himself and most of his purse goes to that insurance policy to keep up the payments so that um, when he dies he looks at it as if at the very least my wife doesn't have a champion for a husband and my kids don't have a champion for a dad, they're going to receive a champion's pay. And so he continually looks for um, that death and he forms a friendship with Edgar um, that he kind of becomes a trainer to him because while this guy is, he loses all the time, he also has a great tactical mind. He just never had the natural gifts to execute on that, but Edgar does. And so they bring them all the way up to, you know, challenging for the world title until a huge fluke, which has happened a whole lot in boxing, a huge fluke leaves, um, I think his name is Juan at this point. His name keeps changing. But uh, Juan, <laughs> yeah. um, <laughs> um, El Chacal, that, that's what I call him, the Jackal. The Jackal has a fluke victory that puts him on a collision course with Edgar. Um, and so both of them see their dreams right in front of them. If the, if the Jackal should win, that means that he doesn't have to die. He can give his family everything. He can do all these things. But that comes at the cost of making his friend, basically getting his friend deported. And on the other end of it, um, Edgar sees that he can get his visa if he wins this title. But at the same time, that means that he's going to have to um, defeat his friend and send him right back down the ranks again, where he's going to be fighting, just waiting to die. And so both of them realize that their stakes are high enough that one, one or the other is leaving the ring in a coffin. Yeah. Um, there is no option. That is that is just what it is because they can't afford it. This uh, Juan cannot afford to let his family down. Edgar cannot afford to get deported and let his mother down, who died getting him across the border. Um, and so that that giant Titanic confrontation um, is really it. And to me, that is that is what boxing is at the end of the day. And that is the system that we've created for a lot of these impoverished guys, um, for whom this is your only option. And there is no hero, there's no Rocky story here. These are two good people who are just trying to do the right thing, who are just trying to honor their family, who are just trying to live a good life, who are being forced to confront the idea that they 
they they got to kill another person um essentially because that other person has no quit in them um and that's right. that's the play right now it's a long synopsis but that is the synopsis. yeah <laughs> yeah i mean what makes me so excited about it is not that it's it's hardly even about boxing it's more about uh immigration opportunity um mm-hmm. rising out of poverty mm-hmm. and and potentially harming a friend so it's about Mm -hmm. it's about love in a way yeah it just does all of that through boxing which i think is Mm -hmm. such a fascinating medium for a story like that and and to shine the light on some guys that we don't generally point the theatrical light on often yeah oh yeah for sure um i it is one of the things that causes me a lot of cringe among my my fellow theater artists where they kind of make fun of athletes and everything um, as someone who's grown up uh, in the not great part of town and everything, um, athletics is one of the only options. I'm not naturally athletically gifted, but the arts was my option. I took the arts as my option over the streets. Um, for a lot of these guys, they who, who wants to get hit for a living? Honestly, who wants to get punched for a living? But if you're good at it, um, it's better than going out and joining a gang. It's better than, you know, ending up dead early. It's better than, you know, all the other options that exist. And so they take it. And to me, that is something, um, there is some nobility in that. Um, and unfortunately, a lot of these men are also flawed. I'm not going to try to say that all boxers are heroes or anything like that. There are some very deeply, deeply flawed boxers throughout yeah. history. Absolutely. But um, when you see their given circumstances, you see that there was no option for them. They had to literally fight their way out of poverty. Um, and I think to me, the biggest thing, you know, along with the conversations about immigration, along with the conversations about what does it take to rise out of poverty, along with all of these different things, I, I really want to look at and interrogate um, what it is that we do to people um, and what it is that we, that we, what we call sport um, is someone else's, I'm gambling my life. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm doing all of these things that that's, that's great and fine and everything, but that they don't have an option or that they feel they don't have a choice or they've been backed into this corner is the thing that I I'm, take most exception with in terms of our global system. It's not just uniquely an American problem. This is a, a global problem with global sure. poverty that they are forced into the situation where they got to fight their way out. Um, Manny Pacquiao is probably like the biggest example of all um, kids starving, um, trying to get some money. So he fights for money. He fights for food money. You know, um, that's like, God, he's, he's literally fighting for a plate. That's it. Yeah. He's fighting for a plate. Um, and what tragedy, what, 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 what horror. And I kind of want to show that. And from an, an American standpoint, from an American perspective, um, how do we rig that game? How did, how was it set up to self-perpetuate in such a way um, that you really, there is no great winning um, in it all. It's not Rocky. It's, yeah. I, I keep going back to that because it's the, that's the stereotype one, you know, it's like, Oh my gosh, he did it. He lived the American dream. It's so amazing. But so often that's not the case for most of these people um same with athletes of all different sports yeah and we see so often the other side of the uh pain that so many athletes go through like nfl players for example being Hmm. the riches and the fame but what we don't see are all of the people taking those risks physically and not getting the riches and the fame. There are still yeah. so many people whose names we don't know who've put it all on the line to try to quote unquote yeah. make it. And mm-hmm. all they end up with is brain damage. Yep. Yep. Um, yeah. That that's really one of those 
other tragic things, um, how, however many hundreds of boxers there are out there and only four world titles, you know, yeah. however, you know, however many, um, you know, kids in Latin America that are practicing their pitch or practicing their kick, there are only so many soccer leagues, there are only so many baseball teams. Um, there are only so many that you can, that you can actually make it through. And there are a lot of unheard stories. I think hoop dreams is another one of those like, um, documentaries that I can go back and I watch all the time because you're just seeing, um, all of this, you see the American dream and play until it's no longer a dream, you know, sure. and that's, that's athletics in a nutshell. We, we can celebrate the big ones that make it. You, we can celebrate all those guys, but the, the truth is, is that they stand on, a, on top of a mountain of bodies that had to basically fall yeah um or never made it um never were able to make the climb and i think that's another thing that is not discussed enough is how do we take care of people after um after their careers have ended um what do we what are we doing with people how are we assisting them with financial literacy how many of these athletes do we hear you know they made millions and millions and it's all gone somehow sure you know um it's 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 stuff like that um that it, it really feels like uh it's like the lotto winner. Oftentimes you, you find lotto winners do not like the fact that they won the lotto in the end. Yeah. Um, and many of them end up with nothing after, after yeah. their lives are quote unquote changed forever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Frankie, this has been tremendous. I have one final question. Cause I did say uh, we'd get to it. Um, you don't like synopses to me. <laughs> that may mean that you may be a writer that discovers the arc of his plays and the nuances as he goes. Uh, do you feel bound by writing out a outline or, or a synopsis before you write a play? It actually depends on the medium. For a play, yes, I do feel bound. Um, and um, I oftentimes get frustrated at outlines and, and synopses um, because I, I don't know where I'm going when I first start a journey. I have an idea. I usually know what my point A and my point B are starting a play. I know that. I know what has to, how it starts, and I know my ending. And some of my more messier plays, I only know my ending. Um, <laughs> yeah. um, I, that, that's it. And then I have to work backward um, from that. Or I jump around and I write a scene, and then I start clicking them together. I'm like, oh, this scene needs this in order to transition better here. Um, so in terms of writing synopses, what is frustrating for me about the synopsis just as a whole is that, yo, I just went through so much editing i edited this thing down from 115 pages down to 50 it's at its essentials and you're telling me to make it even more essential make it one now make it one page all of that Ex exactly you're telling me to put all this arc into one page how what and then the the, the <laughs> dreaded log line to to, to the, the to go from you know okay you got one page and then the log line you got two sentences less than two less than what is it 40 words go and it's just like what what do you, what do you mean no um <laughs> that's not that's not me um so but um but i will say synopses and outlines are the best the absolute best for tv and film um because you need that structure you need mm -hmm. that for, for television. You need to have that there. If it's not there, you will go off the rails and you will not produce a good TV script. Um, an outline is essential. So like with, with television stuff, absolutely, I will spend all my time outlining it. But I think with a different brain when, when it comes to TV, with plays, I just go wherever I need to go. I write the impossible thing and hopefully um, it's going to make sense in the end, which leads to a lot of um, what I call the drawer plays where it's just like, well, that didn't work. Let's just put that away. Put it in the drawer. Exactly. And just yeah. like, let's file it in section 13 here. Um, <laughs> send it to area 51. They'll never get it there. Um, but 
then you know I'll, I'll have this one uh, this this boxing play that I'm doing that I'm I'm really I'm I'm very satisfied with how it's going so far. There are things in there that I'm just like, eh, I can fix that. Eh. But sure. I, I write it all down concerned. first. You know, we'll clean it up later. Exactly. Exactly. Just get it all down. And so, yeah, absolutely. I will have the. <laughs> <laughs> I'll have something happen. I don't know. Um, I'm thinking of a black hole opening up. I've been I've been obsessed with black holes recently because um, they're such it. weird things. But yeah, the synopsis to me frustrates me because usually with a play, not with a television script, but with a play, I have already tried to bring it to its essentials. And then a synopsis is frustrating because you're trying to make me essentialize it even further. You're trying yeah. to make me distill it. Like, how do you distill a human down to the size of a finger? Um, right. That's tough, you know? Yeah. Awesome. Thank you, Frankie, so much for joining us today and sharing a little bit about the extraordinary EB1, which we're all psyched for. So if you're an Urbanite patron and you're listening, there's lots more to come with that over the course of the next year or so. And uh, there will be more Frankie, too. So yeah. thanks, bud. Thank you. Urbanite Theater, thank you so much. Y'all are amazing. If you haven't subscribed, you should subscribe. They make some amazing, amazing theater. They are a fantastic group of people who have been nothing but kind to me. I'm always grateful to them. When theater comes back, go there, get 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 into the podcast. They made a really, really amazing show that I downloaded. Um, it just really um, support Urbanite Theater any way you can. Support your local arts whatever you can do. Um, we're still here and we're always going to be creating. And Urbanite is one of those theaters that has offered me a home during the time when everyone's homes are closed. So I'm always grateful to them. They're the best. They're the best. Frankie, I appreciate that so much. Take care, my man. for listening to this episode of Urbanite Radio, produced by Urbanite Theater here in Sarasota, Florida. It's hosted by me, Brendan Reagan. Original music and sound engineering provided by Sean Reagan. If you would like to sponsor one of our future episodes to keep this great work going, please email us at info at urbanitetheater.com. And as always, visit us online at any time at urbanitetheater.com. <laughs>